Section 19 of the Prussian Officer and Other Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prussian Officer and Other Stories by D. H. Lawrence. The White Stocking, Chapter 3. She refused to go to her work at Adams any more. Her father had to submit, and she sent in her notice. She was not well. Sam Adams was ironical. But he had a curious patience. He did not fight. In a few weeks she and Whiston were married. She loved him with passion and worship, a fierce little abandon of love that moved him to the depths of his being, and gave him a permanent surety and sense of realness in himself. He did not trouble about himself any more. He felt he was fulfilled, and now he had only the many things in the world to busy himself about. Whatever troubled him, at the bottom, was surety. He had found himself in this love. They spoke once or twice of the white stocking. Ah, Whiston exclaimed, what does it matter? He was impatient and angry, and could not bear to consider the matter, so it was left unresolved. She was quite happy at first, carried away by her adoration of her husband. Then gradually she got used to him. He was always the ground of her happiness, but she got used to him as to the air she breathed. He never got used to her in the same way. Inside of marriage she found her liberty. She was rid of the responsibility of herself. Her husband must look after that. She was free to get what she could out of her time so that when, after some months, she met Sam Adams, she was not quite as unkind to him as she might have been. With a young wife's new and exciting knowledge of men, she perceived he was in love with her. She knew he had always kept an unsatisfied desire for her, and, sportive, she could not help playing a little with this, though she cared not one jot for the man himself. When Valentine's Day came, which was near the first anniversary of her wedding day, there arrived a white stocking with a little amethyst brooch. Luckily, Whiston did not see it, so she said nothing of it to him. She had not the faintest intention of having anything to do with Sam Adams, but once a little brooch was in her possession, it was hers, and she did not trouble her head for a moment how she had come by it. She kept it. Now she had the pearl earrings. They were a more valuable and a more conspicuous present. She would have to ask her mother to give them to her, to explain their presence. She made a little plan in her head, and she was extraordinarily pleased. As for Sam Adams, even if he saw her wearing them, he would not give her away. What fun if he saw her wearing his earrings! She would pretend she had inherited them from her grandmother, her mother's mother. She laughed to herself as she went downtown in the afternoon, the pretty drops dangling in front of her curls. But she saw no one of importance. Whiston came home tired and depressed. All day the male in him had been uneasy, and this had fatigued him. She was curiously against him, inclined, as she sometimes was nowadays, to make mock of him and jeer at him and cut him off. He did not understand this, and it angered him deeply. She was uneasy before him. She knew he was in a state of suppressed irritation. The veins stood out on the backs of his hands. His brow was drawn stiffly. Yet she could not help goading him. "'What did you do with that white stocking?' he asked, out of a gloomy silence, his voice strong and brutal. "'I put it in a drawer. Why?' she replied flippantly. "'Why didn't you put it on the fire-back?' he said harshly. "'What are you hoarding it up for?' "'I'm not hoarding it up,' she said. "'I've got a pair.' He relapsed into gloomy silence. She, unable to move him, ran away upstairs, leaving him smoking by the fire. Again she tried on the earrings. Then another little inspiration came to her. She drew on the white stockings, both of them. Presently she came down in them. Her husband still sat immovable and glowering by the fire. "'Look,' she said, "'they'll do beautifully.' and she picked up her skirts to her knees and twisted round, looking at her pretty legs in the neat stockings. He filled with unreasonable rage and took the pipe from his mouth. 
"'Don't they look nice?' she said. "'One of them from last year and one from this. "'They just do. Save you buying a pair.' "'And she looked over her shoulders at her pretty calves "'and the dangling frills of her knickers. "'Put your skirts down and don't make a fool of yourself,' he said. "'Why a fool of myself?' she asked. "'And she began to dance slowly round the room, "'kicking up her feet, half reckless, half jeering in a ballet dancer's fashion. "'Almost fearfully, yet in defiance, "'she kicked up her legs at him, singing as she did so.' She resented him. "'You little fool, I'd done with it,' he said, "'and you'll backfire them stockings, I'm telling you.' He was angry. His face flushed dark. He kept his head bent. She ceased to dance. "'I shan't,' she said. "'They'll come in very useful.' He lifted his head and watched her with lighted, dangerous eyes. "'You'll put em on the fire back, I tell you,' he said. It was a war now. She bent forward in a ballet dancer's fashion and put her tongue between her teeth. I shan't backfire them stockings, she sang, repeating his words. I shan't, I shan't, I shan't. And she danced round the room, doing a high kick to the tune of her words. There was a real biting indifference in her behaviour. We'll see whether you will or not, he said. Trollops, you'd like Sam Adams to know you was wearing them, wouldn't you? That's what would please you. Yes, I'd like him to see how nicely they fit me. He might give me some more, then. And she looked down at her pretty legs. He knew somehow that she would like Sam Adams to see how pretty her legs looked in the white stockings. It made his anger go deep, almost to hatred. "'You're nasty trolley,' he cried. "'Put your petticoats down and stop being so foul-minded.' "'I'm not foul-minded,' she said. "'My legs are my own, and why shouldn't Sam Adams think they're nice?' There was a pause. He watched her with eyes glittering to a point. "'Have you been having out to do with him?' he asked. "'I've just spoken to him when I've seen him,' she said. "'He's not as bad as you would make out.' "'Isn't he?' he cried, a certain wakefulness in his voice. "'Them who has anything to do with him is too bad for me, I tell you.' "'Why, what are you frightened of him for?' she mocked. She was rousing all his uncontrollable anger. He sat glowering. Every one of her sentences stirred him like a red-hot iron. Soon it would be too much. And she was afraid herself, but she was neither conquered nor convinced.' A curious little grin of hate came on his face. He had a long score against her. "'What am I frightened of him for?' he repeated automatically. "'What am I frightened of him for? Why, for you, you stray-running little bitch!' She flushed. The insult went deep into her, right home. "'Well, if you're so dull,' she said, lowering her eyelids and speaking coldly, haughtily, "'if I'm so dull, I'll break your neck the first word you speak to him,' he said, tense. Pfft! she sneered. Do you think I'm frightened of you? She spoke coldly, detached. She was frightened for all that, white round the mouth. His heart was getting hotter. You will be frightened of me the next time you have anything to do with him, he said. Do you think you'd ever be told? Ha! Her jeering scorn made him go white-hot, molten. He knew he was incoherent, scarcely responsible for what he might do. Slowly, unseeing, he rose and went out of doors, stifled, moved to kill her. He stood leaning against the garden fence, unable either to see or hear. Below him, far off, fumed the lights of the town. He stood still, unconscious with a black storm of rage, his face lifted to the night. Presently, still unconscious of what he was doing, he went indoors again. She stood, a small, stubborn figure with tight-pressed lips and big, sullen, childish eyes, watching him, white with fear. He went heavily across the floor and dropped into his chair. There was a silence. "'You're not going to tell me everything I shall do, and everything I shan't,' she broke out at last. He lifted his head. 
I tell you this, he said, low and intense, have anything to do with Sam Adams, and I'll break your neck. She laughed, shrill and false. How I hate your word, break your neck, she said, with a grimace of the mouth. It sounds so common and beastly. Can't you say something else? There was a dead silence. And besides, she said, with a queer chirp of mocking laughter, what do you know about anything? He sent me an amethyst brooch and a pair of pearl earrings. He what? said Whiston, in a suddenly normal voice. His eyes were fixed on her. Sent me a pair of pearl earrings and an amethyst brooch, she repeated, mechanically, pale to the lips. And her big, black, childish eyes watched him, fascinated, held in her spell. He seemed to thrust his face and his eyes forward at her, as he rose slowly and came to her. She watched, transfixed in terror. Her throat made a small sound as she tried to scream. Then, quick as lightning, the back of his hand struck her with a crash across the mouth, and she was flung back, blinded against the wall. The shock shook a queer sound out of her, and then she saw him still coming on, his eyes holding her, his fist drawn back, advancing slowly. At any instant the blow might crash into her. Mad with terror, she raised her hands with a queer clawing movement to cover her eyes and her temples, opening her mouth in a dumb shriek. There was no sound. But the sight of her slowly arrested him. He hung before her, looking at her fixedly as she stood crouched against the wall with open, bleeding mouth and wide, staring eyes and two hands clawing over her temples. And his lust to see her bleed, to break her and destroy her, rose from an old source against her. It carried him. He wanted satisfaction. But he had seen her standing there, a piteous, horrified thing, and he turned his face aside in shame and nausea. He went and sat heavily in his chair, and a curious ease, almost like sleep, came over his brain. She walked away from the wall towards the fire, dizzy, white to the lips, mechanically wiping her small, bleeding mouth. He sat motionless. Then, gradually, her breath began to hiss. She shook and was sobbing silently, in grief for herself. Without looking, he saw. It made his mad desire to destroy her come back. At length he lifted his head. His eyes were glowing again, fixed on her. "'And what did he give them you for?' he asked, in a steady, unyielding voice. Her crying dried up in a second. She also was tense. "'They came as valentines,' she replied, still not subjugated, even if beaten. "'When? Today?' "'The pearl earrings today. The amethyst brooch last year. "'You've had it a year? Yes.' She felt that now nothing would prevent him if he rose to kill her. She could not prevent him any more. She was yielded up to him. They both trembled in the balance, unconscious. "'What have you had to do with him?' he asked in a barren voice. "'I've not had anything to do with him,' she quavered. "'You just kept them because they were jewellery, he said. A weariness came over him. What was the worth of speaking any more of it? He did not care any more. He was dreary and sick. She began to cry again, but he took no notice.' She kept wiping her mouth on her handkerchief. He could see it, the blood mark. It made him only more sick and tired of the responsibility of it, the violence, the shame. When she began to move about again, he raised his head once more from his dead, motionless position. "'Where are the things?' he said. "'They are upstairs,' she quavered. She knew the passion had gone down in him. "'Bring them down,' he said. "'I won't,' she wept with rage. "'You're not going to bully me and hit me like that on the mouth.' and she sobbed again. He looked at her in contempt and compassion and in rising anger. "'Where are they?' he said. "'They're in the little drawer under the looking-glass,' she sobbed. He went slowly upstairs, struck a match, and found the trinkets. He brought them downstairs in his hand. 
These, he said, looking at them as they lay in his palm. She looked at them without answering. She was not interested in them any more. He looked at the little jewels. They were pretty. It's none of their fault, he said to himself. And he searched round slowly, persistently, for a box. He tied the things up and addressed them to Sam Adams. Then he went out in his slippers to post the little package. When he came back she was still sitting, crying. You'd better go to bed, he said. She paid no attention. He sat by the fire. She still cried. I'm sleeping down here, he said. Go you to bed. In a few moments she lifted her tear-stained, swollen face and looked at him with eyes all forlorn and pathetic. A great flash of anguish went over his body. He went over slowly and very gently took her in his hands. She let herself be taken. Then, as she lay against his shoulder, she sobbed aloud. I never meant... My love, my little love, he cried in anguish of spirit, holding her in his arms. End of section 19 End of the White Stocking